No mai whakarongo mai and welcome to The Policy Fix, a podcast by the Policy Observatory AUT. Ko Kerry Mills tēnei, and today I'll be speaking with Dr Mike Joy, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, on his work on Aotearoa New Zealand's freshwater crisis. Mike is the author of Polluted Inheritance, New Zealand's Freshwater Crisis, and editor of the recent collection Mountains to Sea, Solving New Zealand's Freshwater Crisis. Tēnā koe, Mike. Hello. To begin with, could you tell us what the crisis is? Okay, the crisis in freshwater is in our surface water, our rivers, our lakes and our groundwater. And it's about, there's four big things. There's nutrients, which are, and then there's two of those. So phosphorus, phosphate and nitrogen and the effects they have on freshwater. And then there's sediment and then there's human health or pathogens. So that's kind of the four broad things. And if we look at those, then across the country we have the cleanest rivers in the world in the mountains and in the lowlands we have some of the worst rivers and lakes in the world so the classic is a comparison that i've pulled together with some friends about nitrate flux through rivers and the waikato river is among the top three worst in the world manawatu river is only slightly below that and both of them are worse than the Yangtze and the Mississippi rivers, two of the most nutrient polluted rivers in the world. So on a global standard, at the, the lower ends of our rivers are really, really bad. And our, we've got the most pristine lakes and mountain streams in the world. Maybe if I just take you through each of those four things that you mentioned. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, could you tell us what the nutrient problem is? Okay, so the nutrients, and, and there's two key nutrients. There's a bunch of them that plants need to grow, but the two key ones are nitrogen and phosphorus. And we put that on the land um, artificially, huge amounts of it. In the case of nitrate through nitrogen fertilizer made from fossil fuels. So a third from Carpunia, from our natural gas, two thirds from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. We turn it into nitrogen fertilizer, we put it on the land to grow grass. The phosphate comes from West Sahara at the moment, but it's come from all over the world. And so there's a whole lot of ethical issues around where we source our phosphate from. The, the message, you know, as far as rivers goes, is that we put those two things on the land to grow grass. When they end up in waterways, they grow algae. I mean, it's just another plant and of course it grows and it gets to excess levels and then it has problems. So algae's naturally at the base of, of all food systems and fresh waters at a healthy level. But what happens is we get it to an unhealthy level. We call it periphyton. It's the algae that grows on the bed of the, of the waterways and in the rivers. And if you imagine it like a, a mown lawn is how it naturally is. And the invertebrates are grazing like sheep would graze on grass. But what happens when you get excess nutrients, you get like a big, huge forest and you imagine sheep trying to graze a forest. It doesn't work. It's kind of the, the best analogy I can imagine for in a waterway. But the really crucial part is that in water, excess algae causes big fluctuations in oxygen. So you start getting daily fluctuations of oxygen once it gets past a certain point. Early morning, being down to uh, unlivable levels of oxygen in the afternoon, going up to unlivably high levels of oxygen. And in the middle, sometimes that's an okay, but so they, they start to oscillate and swing even more and more. And then if you get a flood come down, it washes it away and you start again and you have a clean slate and the river's clean again. So it's a, it's a process like that. The sediment is a much older and longer lasting problem. We started 
with colonisation and the clearing of forests, massive forest clearance that resulted in a huge amount of sediment, which is just the dirt, the soil, the sand, everything off hillsides and river banks that once you take the trees away, it all ends up in the waterways. It has physical effects on the river itself, but it also carries phosphate with it. So thinking of those two nutrients again, nitrogen and phosphorus, nitrogen is really mobile in water and will just be part of the water and, and move through the system really quickly. Phosphate's bound to sediment mostly, and so it ends up in the river, in the sediment. And in the case of a river, of course, the algae is sitting on the sediment, which is on the bed of the river, so it can mine, it can have all the phosphate it needs out of the sediment. It doesn't need any in the water column because it's there in the sediment. And so the sediment has physical impacts, not just ecological ones, but huge uh, impacts on the usability of rivers and the clarity of rivers and... Change their shape as well. Yeah, or change their shape completely. I mean, there's so many, you know, you don't have to go far back in New Zealand's history to see photos and to hear stories of ships that went right up rivers. I think of the the, the Waihauan Thames and the Cam and Kaiapoi and the and Blenheim and the Whanganui and places like that where ships went right up into the townships and now you wouldn't be able to, you'd run aground in a kayak whereas they had massive big boats going up there so we can see those physical changes and they, they don't stop there. You get then huge impacts on the nursery for ocean fisheries so snappers are classic so pretty much the only snapper spawning areas now are the Kaipara Harbour they once would have been all the harbours in New Zealand, but the eelgrass is smothered by the sediment. And so just huge impacts from that, plus really expensive ones for towns and cities with flooding and pumping that has to happen. We could spend a whole podcast just on what sediment does. Yeah. Then the last one was the human health side of things. So pathogens and cryptosporidium, all kinds of uh, life in the water that can be harmful to humans. But don't worry the native ecosystems at all. I mean the, the fish and invertebrates and the life in the river couldn't care less about these pathogens. These are the, the part of the fecal oral pathway for mammals and birds that make us sick. So it's purely a human problem. So what would you say are the fundamental causes of this crisis you've just described? Um, it's a lack of regulation. It's a lack of realisation for a start. So I mean you know it's just the classic come into a new place, knock everything down, turn it into farming, thinking that you're doing this great thing, feeding the world or feeding the population. And then at some point there's a realisation that actually you've gone too far and you're causing a lot of harm, but then there's a lot of money tied up in it and there's big lobbying power of industry. And in New Zealand is an interesting situation, I think. We have the situation where we, many commentators said we had this fantastic natural advantage that we fixed nitrogen naturally through clover. So our paddocks were full of clover and we didn't have to add artificial nitrogen at all. We were adding phosphate and a lot of it came from Nauru, but we didn't add artificial nitrogen and it wasn't until the gas exploration era off the Taranaki coast where there was a deal done with New Zealand by BP that a take or pay scheme, so you have to take this much gas, you know, and it was way more than we could possibly use. So the New Zealand government ran around and came up with ways to use that gas because they're going to pay for it anyway. So let's build a plant to make gas into nitrogen fertiliser, which is the Kapuni plant. So then there was this, you know, around the 1980s, we had this excess of nitrogen fertiliser. So we, we just very quickly industrialised farming in New Zealand, switching from a natural source to, to a fossil fuel source that 
has driven a massive intensification and pollution of our waterways. So is that an easy fix? Could we go back to clover? Oh, we could very easily, and, and, and I'm working, I'm on an environmental reference group with Landcorp Palmer, our, our New Zealand's biggest farmer, the government farmer, and yeah, I mean, we were showing very clearly that you can go back to it very easily. The problem is, this is coming back to your original question, is that you make something artificial like that and it's big, big business, you know. So the fertiliser companies are massive in New Zealand and, you know, them combined with the milk industry and they have incredible influence on government and policy and, and their influence is, it's kind of the reverse of policy. It's no policy, it's not doing anything. And so not doing anything and allowing this expansion to happen is exactly what the industry wanted. And that is the problem, is not doing anything about this expansion that you know is going to cause problems later on. And what do you think is the cause of that inaction? I, all I see is we have this, this marvellous Resource Management Act that clearly says that this shouldn't happen. The ideals of it were really clear, but it's just so easily pulled apart and the regional councils were left kind of in a policy vacuum because there was no national policy statement on freshwater, which, which should have happened very early on and didn't. And so they're pretty much all doing their own thing and doing their own thing made them very vulnerable to being picked off one by one by the industry. So every council hearing, and I've been involved in plenty of them, and there's an army of the best lawyers in New Zealand on behalf of industry, they're fighting the councils every step of the way when they tried to limit this kind of thing which culminated with, with Nick Smith and the national government sacking Environment Canterbury, a council that tried to do something to limit growth and got knocked over in the process and sacked the elected council members and replaced them with, with their own commissioners. That was the, the ultimate industry pressure that stopped any protection. And is it farming you've been mainly talking about? Yeah, so without a doubt, the biggest impacts are the nutrients and sediment, and they're mostly happening in rural areas. So about 40% of the length of our waterways are in pastoral catchments. 0.8 of 1% are in urban. So definitely there's big issues with urban. The latest figures are that of 350-odd wastewater treatment discharges, 152 of them go to fresh water, and of those, only seven currently meet the requirements to meet the National Objective Framework Level B for human health, which is actually a really weak standard, and 145 of them don't meet that. So there's definitely issues there with the urban human side of stuff, but on a geographical length of river analysis, then it's farming by a long, long shot, and including, it's intensive farming. Including the E. coli? Yeah, both sides, mm -hmm. yeah, very similar. I've actually got some maps that I use in my talk, and these are Niwa maps showing the spread of it. And the map for places that fail E. coli, fail sediment, fail nutrients, are virtually a map of intensive farming in New Zealand. That's just a complete overlay. So the current government has a new work program. Yep. What do we know about it, and <clears throat> do you think it's heading in the right direction? Well, I'm, I'm on two or three working groups as part of those changes. I'm not allowed to talk in detail about what's happening, but you know, I, mean, I can say there is a huge change of attitude. We have an environment minister, David Parker, who really understands the issues, knows what needs to be done, and there's a huge amount of work happening in the right direction. I guess my, myself and the others that are on these working groups are equally cynical and, the, and equally realise that 
the tough decisions that need to be made to save fresh water, and this would go for almost all of our environmental issues, including climate change. The changes that are necessary are so big now, because we've left it so long, that if you were to do it, you'd get voted out. Then that's the dilemma. If I think if all New Zealanders realised how bad we were, the trouble we were in, whether it's for fresh water or for climate, then they would totally accept the necessary changes. But because they don't, most people will just, I mean, if this government wants to bring in the kind of changes we need to protect fresh water, the farming industry would go nuts. Any threat to them being able to do exactly what they want is always a, a problem for a government. I think the science has finally made it into a policy understanding whether it will end up in actual policy is mm. a, another story. It's a, it's a huge risk for this government. While we're in our ideal podcast <coughs> world, yeah. what would you do if these political uh, obstacles weren't in the way? What is actually required? Oh, so, so it's quite simple for fresh water. It'll mean a big de-intensification. So we, I mean, the kind of farms that are sustainable are nothing like the farms that we have at the moment. So the most unsustainable type of farming is what we have, which is a monoculture that runs on fossil fuel and mined phosphate that is irreplaceable. So non-renewable resources being used to make food in a monoculture is just about as wrong as you can get, as unsustainable as you can get. So this utopia that we should have looks much more like permaculture, but it's really diverse farms and what we call closed loop farms where nutrients are cycled within the, within the farming system, exactly like they are in nature. And, and you don't have all these external inputs going in there and then you don't have all the problems leaking out of these systems either. So how do you create a closed loop farm? Oh, this, so the, if it comes to dairy, and I don't think dairy's a good idea in the first place, but if you do, then you, you have the cows, they, they don't go out on the grass, they're on a pad or in a shed. So the pathway for most of that nitrogen is through urine. And so you just collect it and then you use it to grow other plants, vegetables, food, all that kind of thing. And, and you never let it leave the farm. And so you don't need to pour the stuff in because you haven't let it go in the first place. We, the system's like this, like it is at the moment because there's no cost on losing it. So, I mean, they're not paying anywhere near enough for the stuff in the first place. And then we just let it go because there's no cost on letting it go. I mean, I've been involved in research and I can point you to other research showing clearly that, for example, dairy farming in New Zealand, if it had to pay the cost to clean up its environmental impact, then it's a nil-sum game. We would just wouldn't bother because there would be no money. In, there's not a huge amount of money in it anyway for the farmers, but we just wouldn't bother because the costs of it, of cleaning it up, would nullify the whole process. It's because we subsidise the industry by allowing them to pollute that they make money. It's just privatising public wealth. I guess the worst bit of it is that we're not paying, no one's paying, it's being left for future generations to clean up. You mentioned before that this intensification wasn't actually profitable. No. So would we necessarily lose money by changing to this permaculture model that you described? No, we wouldn't. But I mean, the, the problem is that the money is, a big chunk of the farming money made in this country is not made um, by farming, it's made by capital gains. So all those conversions that happened, for example, in Canterbury where it was sheep country, you had massive, massive land value increases in that process. And, and there's bucket loads of data now showing that farms with lower inputs make more profit. Actually, the farms that, that are the most environmentally friendly make the most profit. But their land value 
is tied to the production. So we've got example from, from some of the land court farms where we could halve the nitrogen loss, but the land value drops by 20%. And when you're talking millions and millions of dollars of land value, then that drop is a significant amount. So we've, we've got land values set around the right to pollute. You take the right to pollute away and the land value drops. And so the, the farming for capital gains, because we don't have a capital gains tax, is a big part of it. So would you advocate those policies, a capital gains tax yes. and a polluting, <coughs> yes, but, um, cost for polluting? But we have, if we're going to have a capital gains tax, then we don't have any ex exemptions. So the family home or the family farm or whatever is not going to stop this problem. It has to be a tax on everything like the rest of our taxes are and not exemptions for, for, for special cases. Do you see a way to transition justly into a model that works better for the environment and perhaps better for farmers as well? Oh yeah, I mean, so this model that I'm talking about, this more permaculture model, means getting people back onto the land but in conditions that are nice. They really struggle to get farm workers on dairy farms and that's why you know a huge proportion of the farm workers come from overseas and from countries that are more desperate than us because it's tough, it's a really hard life. They work incredibly hard because there's very little profit in it. And, and they're very, they're the kind of landscapes that you don't want to be in. I mean, I've spent some time recently on some of these big Canterbury dairy farms and there's not a tree in sight. And this is not good for the animals either, but certainly not for farm workers that, you know, you're either out there in incredible heat in summertime and, and there's sort of bouldery soils that reflect the heat back up at you from the ground as well you know, really strong winds because they've knocked down all the shelter belts to put the irrigators in, the pivot irrigators in. So you just have these, you know, almost desert scapes out there that they farm on, which are not nice places to be. And you're just in, on some machinery out there in the middle of nowhere, or milking cows all day long. Whereas the, the diverse systems that have vegetables and fruit and nuts and bees and trees and everything are beautiful places to be and places where you would love to work. So yeah, it's, it's not just a better economics, the, the alternative model, but it's a much nicer place to be as well. Mm. And lastly, just to <coughs> briefly bring back in the complicated politics with all its obstacles to change, yeah. do you see in that real world mm -hmm. any easy things that could be achieved? There's definitely some changes that could happen in the short term for a start, a moratorium right now should have happened ages ago on any more expansion of intensification. You know, so those kind of stopping the rot now and starting to try and haul it back is really, really important. So more water conservation orders on rivers and a ban on any more irrigation schemes because they inevitably end up with worse problems for fresh water. I mean, you could just draw some lines in the sand right now. Could be something that could be done. Well, good luck with it all. Okay, cheers. <laughs> For more podcasts and how to subscribe, visit www.thepolicyobservatory.aut.ac.nz. Nō reira i te whānau ko whakarongo mai nei, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa.